0: Listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at OasisChurch.org. Enjoy the podcast.
1: I'm going to start uh, talking about the, uh, the ability to see and how seeing is often a metaphor for knowing or for understanding. So do me a favor and close your eyes and if you're if you're so bold and can you maybe even cover your eyes with your hand so that no one no one can see I'm looking at you so there you go so you should cover your eyes Now how many fingers am I holding up Right very good so all right that right, no one got it right Let's try it again this time I want you to look at me All right everybody looking all right How many fingers am I holding up so it's amazing how horrible you are, were, at telling how many fingers I had holding up. I was holding up when your eyes were shut. I mean, it was really awful. Uh, somebody said seven. Somebody said zero. Uh, I, I had four, by the way. Uh, no one said four. But when you were all looking, I, not maybe not everyone spoke, but everyone got it right. I mean, no one said zero or seven, right? It's an amazing thing that the ability to see, the ability to perceive, the ability to understand. An epiphany has to do with kind of stepping into the light. Uh, It's an enlightenment. It's to know something or to experience something that you previously hadn't experienced before. And amongst these metaphors that we get in Scripture, being in the darkness, being in the dark, is kind of not being present with God. But to be in the dark means not only do we not see God well, but we don't see ourselves well. We don't see each other well. And as we have an epiphany, as God reveals God's self to us, it's like we're stepping into the light. And as we step into the light, there's the beauty and the warmth and the presence of God But then there's also this kind of reality check as we look down and we see ourselves as we really are. And perhaps we want to kind of shrink back into the darkness, we're we're uncomfortable with the reality of who we are. We we have a tendency to kind of give ourselves a break, like we, we might be quick to judge others, but we're often less quick to judge ourselves. Judging ourselves by our intentions instead of by our actions. Judging ourselves about how we feel, not how we actually sound. So, as we said, today we're going to look at three biblical characters and one oasis character. Um, so, we're going to start with Isaiah and then spend some time there and work through Peter and Paul, and we'll, we'll end with Robin. So, each of these biblical characters has an epiphany. And when they do, they have a response that's quite similar to each other. So, we'll start with Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, so just pause there for a second. Uzziah was a great king, and the year that he died would have been a tragedy uh, for the people. Um, we would have experienced as, as, a, as a great loss. And as we often do in the midst of a great loss, we kind of find our way back to God. When, when horrible things happen, When death occurs, uh, when tragedy occurs, when someone gets a bad diagnosis, it's kind of easier somehow to get up on Sunday morning and make it to church, right? We're we're just, we're kind of, we're seeking after God. And I think that's exactly what Isaiah is doing here. It's the year that King Uzziah has died. He's gone to the temple and he says this, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lofty and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Uh, Zerfas were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, saying, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." This is a popular praise and worship song, not just in the sense that we kind of sang it back in the '80s. Uh, we sang various versions of this. Of course, there was, "He is high and, he was high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple." Anybody remember that one? That's an old one right there, yeah. But this, this holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, or the Lord God Almighty, some translations will say. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's an epiphany. Because to say that the whole earth is full of God's glory is to see things as they should be, not always as they are. Because when we look around, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't take the wisest, most discerning person in the world to realize there's lots of God's earth that doesn't seem like it's so full of glory. I mean, there are people that go hungry, and there are people that kind of go without jobs, and there are people that go without education, and they go without family, and they go without health care. They go, they go without wholeness, right? I mean, this, this particular passage in Isaiah got quoted by other Jewish writers time and time and time and time again. It is an often quoted passage in the Jewish literature. And it's also quoted later in Christian literature as well, in the book of Revelation, John, John will cite it. He'll, he, too, has a vision of the throne room, and he sees these angels, and they're singing this song, and as they start off, those of us who are kind of familiar with the old songs are like, oh, yeah, I recognize this one. It's from Isaiah, right? Because the angels in John's vision say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and then they throw us a curveball. The last line says, the one who was and is and is to come. Well, why change the song? I like the hymns the way they were supposed to be sung, right? I don't like these newfangled changes on the hymns. So what's the amen? <laughs> That's pretty funny. I wasn't expecting get in there, but I'll take it. So what's John doing? He's one of those newfangled guys. Why, why is his vision different than Isaiah's? What's the difference anyway between saying the whole earth is full of his glory and he is the one who was and is and is to come? John seems not quite prepared to say the whole earth is full of his glory because when John looks around, the Roman Empire is in control and it's not so good. People are compromising their faith. They're assimilating into their culture in uncritical ways some of them are kind of uh, giving up the faith in the, in the face of persecution. And so as he looks around and there's war and there's disease and, and there's famine and there's economic disaster and there's sin, he doesn't say the whole earth is full of God's glory, but he does say that God is the one who was and is and is to come. And that is a statement of faith and hope. Because the God who is the God who is to come is the God who when he comes, he will make all of this right. He will fill all of the earth with his glory. And when it is, the sickness will go away. And the wars will go away. And the famine and death will go away. And the economic disaster will go away. And we'll experience the the fullness and the presence of God. We get glimpses of these throughout our lives. They don't happen all that often. I mean, some people seem to experience it more than others. Maybe some people need them more than others, I'm not sure. But that's what an epiphany is. An epiphany is this this kind of revelation of, of God. Of God showing us who God is to kind of ease our pain or to kind of enlighten us to to, um, encourage us, to enable us to kind of move forward. And so they sing this song. It says then that the pivots of the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This, I think, is the most typical experience of biblical characters who have an epiphany. Like, we hear things like, you need to be forgiven, right? We hear things like, God has grace for you. But sometimes when we're living in the dark, we don't realize how much of that grace we need. We don't realize how much of that forgiveness we need. We, we talk about it, and we think, oh, that's good, you know, it's kind of over there, maybe I can cash in on it if I need it. But friends, we need it. We are a broken people. We we have been kind of marred by the the struggles of this earth. It's not because the core of who we are is somehow flawed, right? We're created in God's image. It's because we all kind of participate in the world in ways that uh, kind of increase its brokenness and our own brokenness. But when we step into the light... We experience what Isaiah experienced when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he's like, uh-oh. Right? Have you ever kind of been somewhere and, and maybe you realized, oh, I'm a little underdressed? Like, you, you ever kind of like stroll up into somewhere and everybody else is in like, um, you know, suits and dresses or worse yet, tuxedos and formals and you're kind of there in your T-shirt and camouflage shorts? <laughs> You're thinking, hmm, I'm probably the most comfortable person here. <laughs> no, no, you think like, oh, no, maybe, maybe I, sh- I should go. Maybe this isn't the place for me. Maybe, maybe I'm, not, I'm not right for this. One of the seraphists flew to Isaiah, he says. "They flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it. Seraph is just a fancy word for angel, right? The angel touched my mouth with it and said, now, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen? amen. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here, I, here am I, send me. So Isaiah has his experience, and this is what always happens when we experience God. We are made clean. We don't make God dirty. Like, that's not something that can happen. We can't make God sinful. Encounters with God make us holy. Uh, I've, I've said this a couple times lately, but it bears repeating for this context the, the woman with the issue of blood in Mark's gospel, according to the Jewish law, she was unfit. She was spiritually unclean, meaning that she couldn't go to the synagogue to worship, and she wasn't to be in contact with other people, because if she contacted them, then they too were, were religiously or spiritually unclean, and they could not participate. So she shouldn't have been out in public. But she goes out in public because she's heard of Jesus. And as she's pushing through the crowd, each person she's touching, according to the law, is becoming unclean. And as she reaches out to touch that popular rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth, according to the law, he should have been unclean. Because she was bleeding, right? But when she touches Jesus, that doesn't make Jesus unclean. You can't make God sinful. You can't harm God. You can't stress God out. You can't make God nervous. You can't surprise God. Look, God has never had a negative thought about you. God has never had a negative thought about you. Not one. God knows you. God loves you. You might be surprised when you step into the light and you're like, whoa. (laughs) But God's not surprised. He can see in the dark. (laughs) He knows who you are. As he shines light on you, he's just kind of showing you what he knows. And then he's not bothered by it. He's there to forgive you. He's there to cleanse you. He's there to transform you. And then he's there to call you, to use you, to send you to other people so that they too might hear, so that they too might know, so that they too might be cleansed and made whole and transformed. So Isaiah had said, woe is me, but now he's gone through this kind of ritual of cleansing. It, sound, it sounded kind of painful. A, a live coal was touched to his lips, but his guilt's been departed. His sin's been blotted out. And, and God says, whom shall I send? Isaiah is now ready. Send me, God. And this is what God says to him. Go and say this. Keep listening, but do not comprehend Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. Now, that is not the most positive call into ministry I have ever heard in my life. I want you to imagine you're in the position of Isaiah. Something, tra- something tragic has happened in your life. So it's woke you up from your mundane. You said, oh, yes, I need God. I mean, I, 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 intellectually, I knew I needed God, but now I know I need God, right? So I'm stepping back towards God. And as I do, there's this revelation. And you have that typical experience that people have in the light You've been cleansed, you've been forgiven, and now God says, I'll send you, but the other translations will say they have eyes, they can't see ears, they can't hear hearts that won't understand. No one's going to see you as a prophet. No one's going to listen to what you have to say. Your ministry will be ineffective, and nothing will come of it. what would you say? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm actually curious. What would you say? No Nothing? Why bother? No thanks. no thanks? Now, we need to remember, of course, that we are speaking to the Lord God Almighty. <laughs> and so I think that might change how we might respond. What Isaiah said, and I think this is as, as intelligent as, uh, as an answer as anybody could have come up with. He says, uh, how long? How long, O Lord? How long will it be like that? How long will I not be recognized? How long will I not be heard? How long will I be ineffective? How long? Like, is that, is that it? <laughs> or is that just for a time? Well, apparently, it's just for a time. Because when he asks how long, the Lord says, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is utterly desolate, until the Lord sends everyone far away, and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land, even a tenth part remain in it. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terrapinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled, the holy seed is in the stump. I guess we're ready to go. You know, sometimes the word of the Lord comes to us and it sounds like a riddle. So how long will it be like this? Well, until there's desolation. But there is a tenth of the city, right? Again, in other translations, they call that a remnant. That was a really popular name for youth groups when I was a kid, (laughs) right? That mentality that we had our little group, right? We're going to separate. We're going to hold on to the end. So it's like, well, no one's really going to pay attention to you, Isaiah, but maybe you can have a youth group one day. <laughs> Nothing against youth groups, my friends. But then it says they're, they're taken away into captivity. And it ends with that oh, ever so opaque, there's a seed in the stump. There's a seed in the stump. Their holy seed is its stump. Man, that's tough. What in the world's going on there? In the next chapter, Isaiah starts to prophesy. He prophesies to the king. And the king is like facing an army from his north that's coming down perhaps to destroy them. And Isaiah's trying to say, God's gonna take care of you. The king's trying to work out um, a treaty, an agreement with a larger kingdom farther to the north, to the north of his adversaries. And here's the prophet up there speaking and, and I, I got to think this king is, wants anything but this prophet just to shut up the prophet comes in is like a, a young girl will have a baby and, his, and he will be called Emmanuel and he will eat uh, cottage cheese and honey and, and before the baby's old enough to know right from wrong uh, God will have solved your problem and, and the king's like what? It's like, God spoke to Isaiah in a riddle, and he's like, oh, I understand. And he turned around and spoke to the king in a riddle. (laughs) And the king seems to be just as confused as I am. What? What's happening here? Well, in the book of Isaiah, I, I was taught when I was in seminary, that this call of Isaiah kind of represents his literature. So that the generation of those who won't pay attention, who won't hear, who won't listen, represent the king, King Ahaz. And then the remnant represents Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, who was just as kind of godly as his father was ungodly. Uh, there was a revival. They turned to God, right? They knew the Lord. And so that's, that's the smaller group, right, that kind of held on. But unfortunately, if we're reading through Isaiah, it's about Isaiah 39, we see a Hezekiah late in life also turns away from God. And then the word comes and says, Babylon's going to come and destroy you. And Hezekiah's like, oh no, when? And he said, not now, but to your children's children. And Hezekiah responds, so in my time, everyone will serve the Lord? And Isaiah's like, well, yeah. And Hezekiah seems appeased. Now, some people read that as though, you know, we can't predict the future. We only can live our own lives. And then, you know, so be it. If we serve the Lord, whatever happens later is up to God and them. But I I take it just the opposite of that. I think that was the king's kind of worst step, to not be concerned about the next generation. It's not just a matter about whether or not we serve the Lord. That's great. So, so we live. So, so we're blessed. But what about the others? I mean, I think the most essential thing to being with God is to be like God, and it is to care for the others. It's, Christianity is not for us. Our very salvation is not simply for us. It's so that God might work through us to save the world. It's for God so love the world, not just so God so loved me. <laughs> We've misread that passage of scripture. For God so loved me that he sent his only begotten son. Well, you're part of the world. You're part of what's being saved, but you're not the end point. I'm not the end point. It's this next generation, and that's the beauty of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. is because once he has that conflict with Hezekiah, and Hezekiah's like, well, whew, that's not too bad a news. Isaiah's is like, you got to be kidding me. And starting in Isaiah 40, this is, this is the very next chapter, the, the book stops addressing Isaiah's contemporaries and starts to address those who will live in the exile, which will take place in like another hundred years. And it's all of this message, all of this promise about an anointed one, a Christ, a Messiah, a deliverer, one who will come to you in the midst of your troubles, one who will come to you in exile, in a foreign land, without family, without job, without position, without status, without money, and God will come to you and deliver you and save you. A voice is heard crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. That's Isaiah chapter 40. A man of sorrows whose by stripes were healed and who is bruised for our iniquities. That's Isaiah 53. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted, to set uh, free the captive, to proclaim the year of the Lord's liberty, to give sight to the blind. That's Isaiah 61. That a new heaven, a new earth would come where we'll live in peace in our cities and we'll build houses and we'll plant gardens and we'll see our children's children's children worship the Lord. The shalom, the, the, the peace of God in the city, that's all that Isaiah is filled with after that point. I think the stump in that riddle at the end of Isaiah six is, is the, what's left over after the destruction of Israel. Jerusalem destroyed, the temple's destroyed. There's nothing there but a stump. But the seed that's in the stump are the people, are the message that would ultimately produce the seed, the good news, which is Jesus, the Christ. This is what we find in Isaiah. Isaiah, through tragedy, through his own personal tragedy, Finds the Lord, and when he finds the Lord, he gets to see himself in ways that previously he just couldn't have seen. And despite as bad as it felt, despite as bad as it looked when he stepped into the light, again, God wasn't surprised. God God wasn't flustered. God's not like, how did you get so dirty? (laughs) God's like, be clean, be whole, and go. Go. I I send you. I send you to ministry. I I send you to carry the the word of the Lord. Uh, Briefer stories now about Peter and Paul, but similar stories. So traditionally, this passage in Isaiah gets paired with this passage in Luke. And it's a, it's a fairly common passage in the Gospels. We find it here and there in the different ones where Jesus kind of steps into the boat because the crowd's kind of pressing on the shore. And as they get out into the sea, he's like, well, that was a great lesson. How about we, how about we fish a little bit here, right? Let's, let's, let's fish. And Peter's like, um, Rabbi, uh, we're professional fishermen. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're not just doing this as a hobby. <laughs> this is not just leisure. Uh, we've been fishing all night. Uh, I'm not sure. I probably should look this up. People fish at night. That's the thing. I guess fish bite more at night or something. But they've been fishing all night, and he's like, "Yeah, let's go ahead and put the nets down." And he's like, "All right, all right, we, we can do it." It's definitely one of those things where there's somebody in their field. They know what they're doing. You know, they're like an electrician, or I'm imagining my own life here, right? I'm you know, talking to an engineer, or a mechanic, or electrician, or somebody in accounting, or real estate, or banking, or just all, all these things that I know nothing about. <laughs> right? And I'm like, what if we tried this? And they're like, well, OK. Preacher, sure if you want to. Right? They're like appeasing me. Now, that's definitely how I read Peter's comments. He's like, yes, we'll do that. So they let down the nets. And it's so much fish, it's about to pull not just one boat down, but two boats. So I guess they've tossed out a net, and one, one boat has one, one boat has the other. They have all this fish, it's pulling them down. So they're waving at other boats to come help them, right, to get this net to, that's full of fish out of the water. And when they do, Peter's... Given that experience that we saw with Isaiah, Isaiah, you know, says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and living to people of unclean lips. It says this in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, when he saw this massive amount of fish and the, the boat's about to sink, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, I think Peter needed the same grace and forgiveness and transformation that Isaiah needed. But he didn't know it, like Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah was a professional prophet. He'd already prophesied to to two previous kings uh, before he started his ministry to Ahaz and Hezekiah. I mean, Peter, Peter's a professional fisherman, right? But in this passage, Jesus is going to say, you've been in the fishing industry, but I'm going to make you fish for people. This is that same passage. But his, his initial response is so much like Isaiah's. And I, and I want to say that to you today. Look, my prayer for you, whether it's in a dream or in a vision or in a sermon or in a podcast or in a small group or just on your own with God, if, if you feel kind of Convicted, not condemned, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but sometimes there is conviction. Don't, don't get overwhelmed by it. It is a natural experience when you come in contact with the holy. But also know that God's not particularly bothered. It's not like you're somehow going to be difficult for God to forgive. or You're going to, you're going to be a tough transformation for God. God, God doesn't have those types of difficulties. So, but, but be prepared that your experience, your epiphany of your need for grace is not an uncommon experience in the Scriptures. One last one before we turn to Robin. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's telling the story about the resurrection. And it's his opening. He has this long discussion on the resurrection. But this is his opening uh, bit on the resurrection. And he's kind of going down this list of folks who saw the resurrected Jesus, right? There was James. There was uh, Peter. There was John. There was the rest of the 12. There were some 500 fellows that had also seen him. And then he says this. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 38 and 39. He says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul will say this at some, at some times when we're getting a bit of kind of transparency. I mean, I have heard folks that felt like Paul was being sarcastic and that uh, when he calls himself the chief of sinners, That he's just trying to rhetorically play with his audience, I give Paul a bit more of a sympathetic read. I think Paul has had the experience that Peter had with Jesus and that Isaiah had with the Lord in the temple. That is, he had an epiphany, and when he did, he realized, whoa, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe this place is too holy for me. And I think that is our temptation, Right? to shrink back into the darkness to hope that the the intensity of the light might just pass us by but that's not what god wants god wants us to step into the light he wants us to recognize in new ways the depth of our need for grace so that we can experience the power and the transformation of that grace When we were talking about these characters, Isaiah and Peter and Paul, in our planning session, uh, Robin kind of shared a personal testimony, a similar experience that she had had, and I was moved by it, overwhelmed by it, and so I asked her if she would share it with all of us on Sunday, and she agreed, so if you would, welcome, welcome Robin Grimes.
2: I shared a couple weeks ago um, that I grew up in a very healthy Christian home. I was very fortunate growing up. And um, I was what we called a five-star Christian. Mm-hmm. And what that meant in the Baptist world was you went to all five services every week that you had the opportunity, and then some. And that was Sunday school before church on the mor- in the morning. Then you went to church services in the morning. And then that night you would go to training union for an hour, and then you would hit the Sunday evening service. And then you would hit prayer meeting on Wednesday, and that made you a five-star Christian. And my family did just that. And um, I also went to choir practice, was in the youth group, and just very busy in church. So I um, grew up in that environment. And the people around me, they were very solid, good, good people. So that's what I was surrounded by, and that was my world. And so in junior high and high school, I had a lot of opportunities, and um, I was very, very successful. I, um, if I had tried something, it usually turned out for me. I would achieve all the things I went for. I was straight a straight-A student. Things were just going well for me. And so while I was taught that everyone's saved by grace and that it's not of yourself, it's a gift from God, somewhere in there, even though I knew it was grace in my head, somewhere in there, I started believing in my own righteousness. I kind of um, saw myself as, you know, good guy and everything like whenever you watch all the shows and the good guy always wins Gunsmoke and the Lone Ranger I was the guy on the white horse and because I wasn't sneaking out of the window like all my friends I wasn't going to parties and drinking I didn't smoke I didn't curse didn't do pot anything like that I was following the rules and therefore I should be winning that's the way life works right Um, so we got a little bit older And um, I got a little bit less out from under my parents' thumb because they kept a pretty tight rope on me. Um, I was in college and started making some big life decisions, which is usually the time that some of those decisions present themselves. And um, I was presented with a situation, and I took it. And I had wise counsel saying, Robin, don't do this. This is a bad idea. And even though I didn't articulate it, Somewhere in my mind said, but I'm on a white horse. <laughs> I can come into any situation. It's going to work out because, you know, I'm, I'm blessed. I'm that person. And um, so I went straight forward into that decision, and it was a bad one, a really bad one. And it started unraveling, and I could see it was a bad decision. And it was not going to be one of those decisions that you could sweep under the carpet and nobody would know about. It was one of those decisions that people were going to know about. It was going to come out into the light. And um, the ironic thing was, about this time, I was teaching seventh, girl, seventh grade girls in Sunday school. And I had gone to a big Sunday school conference for my church. And I do say conference because our church was really a large church. And um, I was in there with a lot of the people who taught me growing up. And, and um, all of a sudden, one of my old Sunday school teachers said, Robin, stand up for us. And so I stood up and she said, this is what we want our kids to turn out like. And I'm cringing because I know (laughs) that my decision is unraveling and everybody's going to know about it and it's going to be very embarrassing. And so I was cringing inside and what happened to me was that it all fell apart. Um, Turns out I wasn't perfect. Turns out that the white horse didn't matter. And what I learned in all of that was that everything that I had enjoyed previously wasn't due to my righteousness. It was actually a gift that I was even put in a family that set me up to succeed. And I somehow mistakenly thought that was because of my decisions or something I had done. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do with the fact that I had a great springboard to jump off of. And so... Um, This decision made me understand that, gosh, I need grace. Like I always said, you know, God, I'm a sinner. Please come into my heart. Make me better. But I didn't understand. I'm a sinner. And I'm just like everybody else. And I can make decisions that are bad and have consequences. And I can even make good decisions that don't turn out. Because that's how the world is. And that's how we all are. And we're all in need of grace from God. And um, it was an extreme epiphany in my, my life because for the first time, I was able to start relating to people. Um, just on a side note this is kind of funny, in, in my um, junior year of high school, I was a chaplain for Civinettes and then I became president the next year because, like I said, I, I succeeded pretty well. And um, on the back of my T-shirt, I had the word goody, and then I had the number, and then I had some shoes because I was goody-two-shoes, and I was proud of it. And... Um, you know, it's, it's amazing how you can get knocked off your pedestal and realize that you're just like everybody else. And none of us are the elite. We all are in need of grace and also need of mercy. And um, we should extend that to each other. So it changed my life, and it has helped me hopefully be a friend to people who are in need of a friend and also relate to people um, in a way that I would have never been able to relate to. So that's my story.
1: We've been closing our services these last few weeks during Epiphany with a common um, benediction out of Isaiah. Today, we'd like to just take a few more minutes and kind of expand that, hear more uh, from the, these texts from Isaiah, from Peter, from Paul, uh, and then also a bit from that oh so popular passage from John chapter 3 in ways in which, like Robin, we all kind of participate in this life and have these kind of epiphanies um, which do call us forward into our life with God. And so as we close today, uh, just kind of give an ear um, once again to these scripture passages that talk about these biblical characters and their experience.
0: In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the king, the lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the Lord, voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Let's read together. The, the people who walked, who walked in darkness, darkness have seen, seen a great light. light. Those, Those who lived in, lived in a land, land of, darkness, of deep darkness, on, on them, them light, light has shined.
3: Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you also have come to believe. Altogether, let's read. The people People who walked in darkness darkness have seen seen a great great light. light. Those who lived in a land of deep 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 darkness, darkness, on on them the light has shined.
0: shined.
4: Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a cast. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long and have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down as Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Together let's say, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have lived in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined.
0: For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him.
3: Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil.
4: For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Together, we who have walked in the darkness have seen a great light. We who have lived in the land of
3: deep darkness,
4: on us a light has shined.